on this week's 51%. A Marine Corps boot camp in California opens to women, and a writer discusses what she calls America's obsession, breasts. Everyone needs to be equal, and we are 51%, and so we need to accept our bodies or do what we want because we have to live in our culture. And women make some progress among Oscar nominees. I'm Allison Dunn, and this is 51%. They tell us from the time we're young to hide the things that we don't like about ourselves, inside ourselves. I know I'm not the only one who spent so long attempting to be someone else. Well, I'm over it. For the first time, the Marine Corps has fully opened both its boot camps to women. The first female recruits arrived in San Diego recently, at a camp that since 1923 had trained only men. Women will also continue to train at the Marine Corps' other facility at Paris Island, South Carolina. But integrating boot camp is just one of the hurdles in bringing gender equity to the Corps, as Steve Walsh reports for the American Homefront Project. The first class of female recruits are a third of the way through training in San Diego. Part of a congressionally mandated march to become the last service to integrate boot camp. They've gone through pool exercises and scaled obstacles in the confidence course. One obstacle for their leaders, keeping these women once they prove themselves and then finding more like them women who want to become U.S. Marines. It's a profound transformation. Leah Booth was a Marine from 2004 to 2009. I got to say I had a blast at boot camp. It's super hard. Obviously, it's physical. It's it's challenging. You don't get a ton of sleep. You're always on the move. Everybody loses weight. Women make up to close to 20% of the Navy. The number of women in the Marines is just under half of that. Despite foot-dragging on integrating boot camp, The last two commandants of the Marine Corps have publicly vowed to increase the number of women in the Corps. Booth says one reason why there aren't more women is many of the most recognizable jobs, or MOSs, in the Marines had been closed to women. You can do every job that a guy does, with a few exceptions in the Air Force. But the main MOS in the Marine Corps, women couldn't do up until really recently. So I'm sure that's part of it. The Corps is also the only service to fight the Secretary of Defense's decision to open up all combat roles to women in 2015. Compared with the Army, a relative handful of women have combat roles in the Marines. I try to stay as much out of the office as I can. Sergeant Leah Engel is one of a few female Marine recruiters. Most Marines come right out of high school. Their image of the Corps comes straight out of video games. Call of Duty and things like that, seeing what's on TV. Most Marines won't spend their career in the once-restricted combat roles. The image actually makes it harder to recruit a broader pool of women. Recruiters often spend months getting both men and women into shape before they ship out. One of Engdahl's recruits is among the first class of women training in San Diego. She kind of had it set in her mind that she wanted to be a United States Marine. She just was a little bit concerned uh, about maybe the physical aspect of things. And the way that I prepared her was we would actually meet here at the office uh, twice to three times a week, and we would physically train to get ready. Marines and veterans say the bond that starts at boot camp lasts a lifetime, even through hardship, and sometimes even through betrayal. Julie Weber started serving in 1996. In my first duty station, I was raped, and I was not supported by anybody in my unit. 
at least nobody whose opinion mattered. The specter of sexual assault looms over the Marines, which typically lead the services in the number of assault and harassment allegations. Weber has a tattoo on her forearm of the globe and anchor, the symbol of the Marines. She says she got it after she left the Corps in 2012, after a second enlistment. As she struggled through law school, she wanted a daily reminder of what she could accomplish. I try to support people who need it. And I don't think I was always this way, but the Marine Corps kind of made me that way. And I am strong because of them. The Marines' warrior tradition is built at boot camp. Advocates say integrating the sexes is an opportunity for the Corps to finally recognize that the strength and determination instilled in the beginning doesn't just apply to the men. In San Diego, I'm Steve Walsh. This story was produced by the American Homefront Project, a public media collaboration that reports on American military life and veterans. Leslie Lair wants to talk about boobs. She's gone from size AA to DDD and everything in between, from puberty to motherhood, enhancement to cancer, and more. And she's not alone. Lair's new book, A Boob's Life, How America's Obsession Shaped You and Me, blends her personal narrative with history, starting in the 1960s with the women's liberation movement and moving to the current feminist dialogue and what it means to be a woman. Lair is a prize-winning author, screenwriter, and essayist, her books include the novels 66 Laps, Wife Goes On, and What a Mother Knows. Her essays have been published in the New York Times and Huffington Post. Lair spoke with 51%'s Elizabeth Hill about why she decided to tell her story. This was a personal journey for me. I mainly got out of the shower really upset that my breasts didn't match after I had been through breast cancer and everything. And it happened to be a particular night when I thought everything was great and it was be very romantic. And um, I was so angry. My husband accused me of being obsessed with my breasts. And I was really insulted. How could a woman be obsessed with my breasts? And then uh, David Letterman was doing his farewell after 38 years of being the smart comedian on TV. And he took a, told a boob joke. I was so angry. And, and my husband and I looked at each other and was like, it's not just me who's obsessed. And clearly date night was off. Well, not happening. My husband went to bed. We'd just moved into a new place. And I just went and started unpacking and realized that my entire life, I could connect the dots. I And I realized it wasn't just me. It was this whole country. So I actually decided I had to be a detective and figure out why I was obsessed because I did not want to be a woman who was obsessed with my breasts. I was a feminist. And how could this be happening <laughs> to me? So it was really all about figuring it out. And in order to do that, I really had to dive deep into the history of everything that had happened since I was born to realize how much our culture and all these different factors went into, you know, making us commodified by our breasts and how that's really held both women and men back. So that's it really funneled out from a personal need to not be accused of being obsessed with my breasts. I'm curious why you think America's obsession is unique when it comes to breasts. I think obviously everyone likes breasts, you know, the whole world does. It's men's biological instinct to not only like beauty and for women to want to be beautiful, but uh, to have a mate who can feed their young. And yet in America, and this is the weird thing that nobody had really connected before. I mean, there's a lot of books out there on breastfeeding, breast cancer, you know, the women's body art. But I realized that when I was born, it was this not even a trifecta, but a perfect storm of events that made it uniquely American where 
World War II, um, you know, Uncle Sam actually had childcare centers for women so they could work while the men were at war. And then when they came home, Uncle Sam closed the childcare centers and really wanted women to go back in the kitchen so men could take the jobs. Now, clearly, a lot of these men didn't come back from the war. A lot were maimed. So it was the biggest time where women were working. And yet at this very same time, this dude named Hugh Hefner, who was raised by Puritan parents who didn't give him any affection, his fiance, I think, I think they were both virgins, but he, his fiance cheated on him. He went ahead and married her and essentially took revenge on every woman ever since, created Playboy at the very same time that, you know, he stole this, this uh, artist Vargas away from Esquire who was also painting the bullet bras and the pinup girls on the warplanes. So the men were looking at this American goddess. The same time for the very first time, television was in homes. It went from hundreds to millions within a couple of years. And advertising rose in order to support this medium. And I found this fact that men's eyeballs look at a women's chest within 200 milliseconds of them entering a room. And yeah. we know that, you know, in America, size is everything, but size really doesn't matter with, with breast milk. But honestly, in order to get eyeballs to watch TV, men had big, busty women. And suddenly everyone had a TV and suddenly all the men had Playboy, even in my father's university. And so, oh, and at the same time, baby formula was really pushed. My mom did not use, didn't breastfeed. It was, it was considered, you know, gauche. It wasn't a cool thing for a nice middle-class or upper-class women to do. And so they used baby formula. It was the new scientific thing. And so breasts were no longer for babies. They were really for men and they really made women look sexual. And I really feel like that's a uniquely American thing that happened in the sixties. And then we go through feminism, taking off a bra, wearing a bra, Breasts symbolize whether you are for the war, or against the war, or cool or not. But it, we really got judged and commodified by our breasts. So, for me, that's what makes it not uniquely American, completely, but definitely hugely more big deal in America. And since you know, then women had to be naked or topless in Hollywood. I mean, the numbers are crazy. It's suddenly, you know, actresses had to remove their tops in Hollywood. Movies are made by men, and Hollywood became a huge influence the world over. So that's why I feel like it's an American obsession. How did this obsession shape your own perception of your body image through childhood, motherhood, and breast cancer? Every little girl wants to have breasts like their mom. I mean, that's part of being a woman, and it's part of what makes women beautiful. It's, it's a full package. And I grew up in the Midwest in Ohio, and it, breasts were the holy grail. If you wanted to be a beauty queen or a or a cheerleader, you had to have breasts. And, you know, suddenly there were padded bras. The FDA actually, actually the American Society of Plastic Surgeons um, in the 80s said that small breasts were a disease. They paved the way for insurance to cover a lot of different breast reconstruction and breast implants and all these kind of things. And for me, well, I had to hide them, you know, to be like taken seriously at, at work when I was in my 20s. And then when I got pregnant, I had these beautiful, glorious breasts. And then when they emptied out, I kind of wore my flat chest as a, as a badge of honor. I didn't need breasts. I was a mom. And that was so powerful. <laughs> you know. And then um, I had this pretty horrific divorce. And I was, during my marriage, I was, you know, I started as a career woman and really got trapped at home because of the childcare thing and because of the shame and the roles that 
we have as men and women. And I was pretty much forced to compromise my career and stay home as the mom because I'm the one with the breath. After that marriage, my mom really felt that I was going to be lonely without breasts, that how could I be attractive without them? And I, of course, had always coveted breasts and my nipples pointed down like Eeyore, you know, the sad donkey and Winnie the Pooh. So um, at a real auspicious birthday, when I was single, I kind of like, she offered me to get uh, augmentation as a divorce gift. I mean, it was, I wanted money to help pay my mortgage, you know, keep yeah. my kids. I, I had custody 24 seven, but this was like, that she wasn't offering to help that that was my job and so i kind of like on a whim the last minute in a depressed moment went for it and honest to god suddenly i felt more confident and i started got my career back together and then then of course i started dating and i showed them off and then i was embarrassed that they were fake and you know it was this i mean everything the size really made a difference to how i felt about my body and then when i got breast cancer it was totally random. I don't have the BRCA gene, but it's like being attacked in, you know, the most vulnerable places of women where you identify. And breast cancer really wasn't known. I mean, all the research is pretty new since uh, I'd say the 80s. It wasn't until Bill Clinton's um, mom died like four years later when he actually had the women's, you know, a, a law passed to help reconstruction. And here's the weird thing. About 300,000 women a year get breast augmentation and and it's the most popular elective surgery and ironically about the same number of women 300,000 a year get breast cancer and these are not the same women so breasts like they feed our babies they can kill us they're they're this huge representation of our caretaking and who we are as women not only for beauty but our purpose and they're also an organ they we literally turn you know blood into milk and yet there's not a medical specialty for them but so the size really made a difference throughout my life. And, and I feel like that I realized that it's this insidious thing in our society where, you know, even I want to be beautiful now. And although now I, you know, I mean, I've been reconstructed a few times and was so frustrated by it. And I watched the women on, you know, on TV and, and the celebrities. And it's like they show their cleavage to be powerful. And yet there's this weird like the difference between the women free their nipple who want to show their their breasts, you know, to be free and equal, and the and the girls in, or I should say, women in Girls Gone Wild who flash their breasts yeah. to be sexy, the men looking at it get the same thrill, right? So it's really about how women's perspective is and how we feel about our breasts, and and I I personally feel like women, you know, you can do whatever you want, and we just have to stop judging each other and. For me, it just led me to this real feminist attitude of everyone needs to be equal and we are 51%. And so we need to accept our bodies or do what we want because we have to live in our culture. How does the breast cancer experience differ for women of color versus white women? Oh, it's completely different. I mean, much more women of color um, die and are much sicker. And a lot of that has to do with lack of diagnosis. Uh, I mean, 40% of women find their own cancers and then also mammograms, you know, are huge. I mean, the earlier detection you have, the better treatment you're going to have. And many women, even in the South, it's bad. Um, they just lack the medical services and the insurance coverage just because of the systematic, you know, um, lack of resources in a lot of these neighborhoods and women just don't have the the access. And I think it's mostly about the access. I mean, there may be 
I, I don't know about the biological difference. I really think the mm-hmm. medical care is, is just absolutely key. And that's one of the things with, you know, feminism, we need to be really inclusionary of everyone and to ma- raise everyone to this level. It's just, it's just like the pay for women. You know, it's all, it's less for women of color and, and medical care is the same. And so we're, we're losing valuable resources of women in our brains and our, our caretaking um, to this, this, this disease. 42,000 women will die this year and probably more because women are scared of going to get their mammograms in a pandemic. So mm-hmm. please go. And probably a, a disproportionate number of those women are, are going to be of color. And it's, it's a tragedy. Bringing it all back together now, what are you hoping for your book? What, what are you hoping it provides for readers? You know, I'm using personal stories as a way in to hopefully expand people's awareness of how women are treated so that we are not so judgmental of ourselves and not so judgmental of other people. And the really great thing about the publishing experience is that I was able to keep revising it right until after the election in December. So I definitely have included all the way up through Black Lives Matter, Me Too, and Time's Up. So the conclusion is really about making a statement about, you know, fairness and equality. And, And I know I even have family members who have different political views as I am. And I'm hoping by through my my personal stories and showing kind of an analysis of how I thought this way at this time and what songs were playing, what movies I was watching, you know, how that influenced how I thought and what I did next. Uh, Hopefully people will have an understanding a little more about the 51%. (laughs) That was author Leslie Lair speaking with 51%'s Elizabeth Hill about her new book, A Boob's Life. How America's Obsession Shaped You and Me. I know I'm not the only one who spent so long attempting to be someone else. Well, I'm over it. I don't care if the world knows what my secrets are. The 93rd Oscars are scheduled for April 25th, having been postponed from February because of the COVID-19 pandemic. And for the first time, more than one female has been nominated in the Best Director category in the same year. Previously, only five women have ever been nominated for the Oscars Best Director. Chloe Zhao is nominated for Nomadland, and Emerald Fennell for Promising Young Woman. Zhao already made history as the first Asian woman to win Best Director at the Golden Globe Awards in February. Nomadland, based on a 2017 nonfiction book of the same name, is about a woman in her 60s who, after losing everything in the Great Recession, embarks on a journey through the American West, living as a van-dwelling modern-day nomad. The thriller Promising Young Woman tells the story of a young woman who is traumatized by a tragic event in her past and seeks out vengeance against those who crossed her path. Dr. Mia Mask is a film professor at Vassar College in Poughkeepsie, New York, She teaches African-American cinema, feminist film theory, and other courses. I spoke with her about the two women nominated for Best Director and more. It is a very exciting year. It's wonderful to see Chloe Zhao, obviously, and Emerald Fennell nominated in this category. And, uh, you know, I just wish them the best of luck. I would love to see more women regularly nominated. But it's an exciting year, and uh, these are great films. Where is there lack of representation still among the categories? 
Sure. Well, I have to say this year I'm particularly excited. So in the interest of full disclosure, I'm particularly excited because a former Vassar graduate is, uh, or I should say a Vassar graduate is nominated. Uh, Shaka King uh, was one of my students, and he's nominated for his film Judas and the Black Messiah. So I've got my own horse in the race with Judas and the Black Messiah, but I think there could still be greater representation uh, for women, people of color, and for LGBTQ folks. So that would be nice to see. And it would just be nice to see it be a more regular occurrence rather than the rare occasion. What about the actual storylines of films? Are you starting to see some more burgeoning out? I remember we we talked about this the last time, and there were some films you were very happy to see in terms of storyline and representation mm-hmm. of women in film. So what what's out this year that is like that? Well, the United States versus Billie Holiday, right? Lee Daniels' film is a great tribute in in many ways to Billie Holiday and to the challenges, obstacles, the exploitation that she faced. So it's it's a, a tough film to watch because her life story was so difficult, but it is rewarding or uh, at least um, uh, important that this film was made and is seen widely because it's a great commemoration of her struggles. I love the, the sort of ethos behind the film, which is to say that we need to recognize Billie Holiday as a sort of godmother of the civil rights movement in some ways, right? With the song Strange Fruit that she tried so uh, hard to sing and was constantly being uh, censured and censored for. Uh, so I'm very happy to see that. Um, I also am, am impressed always with Carrie's Mulligan and uh, her performance in A Promising Young Woman. This is a great film, a wonderful, obviously, uh, uh, director here. I'm excited about Emerald Fennell, as I said earlier. So it's nice to see this story being this story being told. It's kind of dark but but humorous in, in many ways. Um, and Ma Rainey, right? The uh, the show is a wonderful film as well by Viola Davis, who we know is no stranger to the Academy Awards. So I think there are some wonderful films in terms of content and the representation of women and women's issues. What storylines would you like to see or what kinds of stories are not being handled effectively or representatively? What are we still seeing that's like, come on already, it's 2021 or 2020 when these films came out? Hmm, that's a, that's a good question. It's, it's not that we are, you know... I mean, I guess I, I'm really impressed with Mank, and I love Dave Fincher's work, um, and, and it's beautifully executed film. So one really can't take issue with the artistry behind the film or the wonderful performances therein and um, how well executed it is. I, my only hesitation there, and it's not a criticism of the film, but it is a question that I ask, which is I think that Hollywood loves films about Hollywood, right, and about it and uh, about itself and its own lore. And though that's absolutely important, and there are there are always nuances and hidden historical gems being revealed. Sometimes I, I wonder if that insularity isn't a bit much. But again, that's not a critique of the artistry or the work that went into the film, but just the familiarity of the stories that we are seeing sometimes coming out of Hollywood. We often see a dearth of older women um, being cast for roles and storylines that are, you know, not silly. What would you like to see expanded upon in the years to come? 
as you say, more quality roles for older women. I am a huge fan of Olivia, of Olivia Coleman. I feel like she can do no wrong, whether it's The Crown or anything else. You know, she's got the Midas touch. And I'd love to see her, but others working as well. There's so many wonderful, uh, talented actors, and they're just underemployed. So older women, women of color, uh, I would just like to see more content for them. And these stories are out there, and, and we need to be told. Again, I am really rooting for Judas and the Black Messiah of, of among the, the nominated films this year because Bishaka King's a, a vast student. But that said, I, I would love to see more films for women, uh, for uh, women of color, and for older women, as, as you aptly point out. Is there something else, some other category, or any nuance, or anything you wanted to comment on, Mia? Please feel free. Great. That's a good question. No, I mean, I, I guess I would like to see a greater variety of documentaries, and also uh, for us to be able to get a little bit more exposure to foreign films. I mean, it would be lovely to see more foreign films, uh, more African films, uh, being made available, being shown, being distributed. So I think that our content is a little bit on the uh, sort of insular side uh, with respect to categories like documentaries, foreign, international films. Uh, but I, and there's a lot of you know room and possibility for growth there because again, people are hungry for content. The pandemic has made that obvious, and uh, I think we will continue to see an interest in more diverse and more international content. Mia Mask is a film professor at Poughkeepsie, New York-based Vassar College. Men outnumber women 3 to 1 across COVID-19 government task forces around the world. Such disproportionate representation will hamper women's recovery from the pandemic. This is according to new data released by the United Nations Development Program, UN Women, and the Gender Inequality Research Lab at the University of Pittsburgh. As the world marked one year of the pandemic in March, women on average still made up only 24 percent of members among 225 COVID-19 task forces examined across 137 countries, as shown by the COVID-19 Global Gender Response Tracker tool that analyzes government pandemic policies. And in 26 task forces, there are no women at all. The new data comes as the world continues to navigate the global pandemic and its impacts on women, from their role as frontline health care workers, to the loss of jobs as the informal economy shrinks, to the spike in domestic violence and unpaid care burden, threatening to push 47 million additional women into extreme poverty. A UNDP administrator says women have been on the front lines of the COVID-19 response, making up 70 percent of health care workers globally. However, they have been systematically excluded from the decision-making process on how to address the impacts of the pandemic. That's our show for this week. Thanks to Tina Rennick for production assistance. Our executive producer is Dr. Alan Shartok. Our theme music is Glow in the Dark by Kevin Bartlett. This show is a national production of Northeast Public Radio. If you'd like to hear this show again, sign up for our podcast or visit the 51% archives on our website at wamc.org. This week's show is number 1655.